and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Today we're thrilled to be talking to Tom Carruthers, who is the Harvey V. Feinberg Chair for Democracy Studies and Senior Vice President for studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's a leading authority on international support for democracy, for human rights, governance, the rule of law, civil society. And he's the author of Democracy Divided, the global challenges of political polarization, which we'll link to in our notes. Tom, we're thrilled to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining the Palia podcast. Good to be with you. Tom, let's let, let's kick off at the at sort of the definitional level. Um, your book talks about this growing thing that you see taking shape across all sorts of different uh, politics around the world. How do you define polarization itself? Well, I'm glad we start off with this fundamental question because um, people disagree about it. Polarization is polarizing. <laughs> so, so let's get right into it. It's natural in a democracy to have contending sides that compete hard for power. That's the nature of democratic politics. Um, they scramble for votes, they make promises, they badmouth each other. You know, that's democratic politics. What's wrong with that? What I'm interested in, and the scholars who worked with me in this book, is severe polarization, which is a kind of extreme form of polarization that can set in in a society and really cause some damage. What are its characteristics? First, it's that you have usually two contending groups and they start to align so that all of the important issues seen from one group uh, look different than all of those same important issues seen from the other group. So instead of having what political scientists like to call cross-cutting linkages, like, okay, I disagree with you about this issue, but I'm with you on that one, everything. I'm in this group, so anything you put forward on the other side, I disagree. Second, it's that the groups become so frictive, so much in friction with each other, they just can't work together because there's a lack of common ground, usually growing animosity. And, you know, it turns into what we call uh, tribal politics. I don't particularly like that term because it sounds like you're bad-mouthing African traditions, but politics, which is really about faith and belief in my side rather than attachment to a reasoned set of policy choices. And then third, it sets in and it's not just six months or 12 months, it becomes a condition that's like a negative vicious cycle. And the more you do it, the more you say, well, <laughs> we'd be reasonable, but these people on the other side, they just keep doing unreasonable things. So I'm afraid we're gonna have to fight fire with fire. Then the other side says, see, they keep amping it up. And then you get into this negative spiral. So those are some of the conditions that you say to a Does this country have extreme polarization or severe polarization. Those are the things I'd look at. Tom, that's fabulous. Yes, we've spoken to a couple of people who've um who sort of expounded sort of theory around this, this idea of political polarization, the distance between um, what people think on the left and the right, for example, and then affective polarization, the degree of hatred they feel for each other by the size right. of the political yeah. spectrum. Right. Um, 
but yeah, your, your categorization makes lots of sense. And actually, just to go a little bit further, I think in your book, you describe three key features of severe polarization. One, the binary nature of it. Two, the fact that it's sustained. And three, you talk about the importance for a really good and really dangerous piece of polarization for both elites and the masses mm-hmm. that could have come together. Could you sort of walk us through those three key features that for you are central to severe yeah. polarization? Well, sustained, as I mentioned, is, you know, it's uh, it's set in and it's not just a certain leader. And once that leader leaves the scene, you know, things are fine. And, uh, but I really want to get at the last one you mentioned, because I talked about the other two, but the last one you mentioned of mass versus elite polarization, um, because that's really critical. In most cases that we looked at, polarization starts at the top. It's kind of a political game in which political entrepreneurs start using issues, often identity issues, we'll come back to that, and using them to amp up the temperature of politics and to you know, really start aggravating the situation. And then what they need to do is push the polarization down into the society. If you wanna see a vivid demonstration of that, watch 10 minutes of a YouTube video of Donald Trump at a campaign rally, a master pusher of polarizing narratives out into the population and get them on board with the narrative that the political entrepreneur is creating. But there are cases where a society is quite polarized in some ways, but the political system is rather consensual. That's interesting. There are few of those. The United States actually happens to be one. In the 1950s and 60s, American politics in some ways was fairly consensual because our political parties hadn't really polarized yet. But the population was starting to become more and more polarized over civil rights, the Vietnam War, uh, Watergate. Issues were incredibly divisive throughout the society. There were political conflicts too, but the society was becoming polarized into two different views of what America should be. And then each side wanted their party, quote, to embody that view and not be centrist and consensual. So in rare, it's rare, but in some cases, polarization works up in a society as opposed to the more typical start at the elites and work down. That's fascinating. I've got so many questions to ask you on the back of that, but um, does the, the kind of Donald Trump example that you've given, of which there are many around the world, I don't know, I wonder whether you count Bolsonaro in that category or for example, um, the kind of polarized politics of Hungary or Poland today, do you need a base upon which to lean to be able to drive this this polarizing narrative down, as you say? You know, what I think you really need isn't a base. You develop the base. But what do you need to develop a base? You need a grievance. You need a sense of grievance. Most polarizing political projects are grievance projects. We, the Hindus in India, have been put aside. It's our country. We're 80% of the country. Why is it that Muslims and others are stepping in front of us because of affirmative action? I'm going to stand for Hindu nationalism and take back our country, a grievance project of a majority, by the way. Or Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, the poor and the working class of Venezuela have been stepped upon by the rich and the banks and the businesses for decades. Let's not take it anymore. Let's overturn this system and, and let's do what we need to do to bring justice to Venezuela. Almost every really polarized democracy has a grievance project behind it. You use the grievance to find your base, those who buy into the grievance, and then you build it, you stoke it, and you define the base and you define the grievance and you turn it into your that's your battering ram, is the grievance. That's fascinating. I love your term of the idea, your, your idea of the sort of political entrepreneur um, using his 
or her marketing tools to best advantage to stoke up a base. Can I go to the other approach that you flag, which is sort of the, the bottom-up one? Ezra Klein's book on, I think it's called Polarization, actually, he makes a point that you made right at the beginning of this conversation, which is to say that there are instances in which polarization is a good thing. I think that Ezra Klein's line in his, um, in his, in his book on polarization suggests that actually the complicity of, say, the Democrats, mm -hmm. who would have been the most natural allies of the civil rights movement, in the 50s and 60s, the complicity of the Democrats in not rocking the boat, in staying centrist, in staying aligned with a kind of a uh, sort of a, a middle ground of politics, sort of hangs over them like a like mm -hmm. with, with with real blame. So there are moments where, as you say, de democracy um, sort of requires some degree of polarization. Bob Talese, who we've interviewed on this podcast, describes polarization in a sense as a feature, not a bug, of democracy. That's right. It is. Yeah. 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 As in so many dynamic systems, Turi, this is, you know, across all domains of the human endeavor, it's it's finding the balance in forces that are naturally dynamic and in some ways necessary, yet if released or uncontrolled can become destructive. So it isn't like politics is, this is the right system, you're fine. This is the wrong system, you're in trouble. It's, can you keep this, this fire of competition and striving and struggle in a democracy under control? We can come back to what are some of the, the walls that you build around that fire to keep it under control. But let me just highlight, there's a very good point about too little polarization is a bad thing. Here are two examples. One is Germany. Germany in the 1990s and 2000s became politically a very boring place. The choice between the center right and center left in Germany was, you know, I mean, you could find it, but it wasn't very interesting. And he had a series of, you know, coalition governments and ministers from this party and that party working together. And part of the reason you have a radical alternative in Germany now is because of that. People felt like, hey, I happen to care about migration and don't agree with the consensus. Who do I vote for? Or other issues. Another example is Chile, very successful country in South America with a, what appears to be a strong party system, a center-left party and coalition and center-right, back and forth in power for 20 or 30 years. But then last year, protests burst out that are kind of anti-systemic. Just a whole bunch of Chileans, it turns out, hated the system. And you're like, but you have choices. And they say, I want other choices. These guys are just trading power, power back and forth like you know, some people at a dinner party. I want some real choices. And so too much consensus can lead to a dangerous pressure for alternatives that usually tend to be, quote, anti-systemic, but unfortunately extreme and rule-breaking and dangerous. That's fascinating. So um, to add to this notion of a grievance politics, which needs to form a basis for a, a polarizing leader, a political entrepreneur who seeks to benefit from it. You've also got a situation in which, an well, absence of enough choice over a sustained period of time will create that kind of grievance politics because not enough alternatives are being, are being surfaced. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can I just say another word about grievance politics, Jerry, is that grievance is a it's a consuming friend. Once you're a grievance politician, you've got to keep stoking the grievances. And what happens is you watch it. Leaders will run out of a grievance and have to find a new one. Viktor Orban in Hungary, the prime minister of Hungary, who's uh, tremendously polarizing and very illiberal, has he, he really has tried, he started in, you know, when he came to power in, in about 10 years ago, he, he 
pushed forward this idea of grievance about the central left mishandled the economic crisis. They were lying to the country, were falling apart. So it was an economic grievance. Well, the country started recovering as most countries did over the next five years. What's next? I need another grievance. Ah, oh, there's migrants coming into our country. Oh my gosh, our country is being overrun by 62 Syrian migrants, you know, and this is gonna be the end of Hungary. So he played that very effectively for the three or four years and then the migration crisis kind of died down. What's next? Hmm. LGBTQ, oh my gosh, the homosexual agenda in our country. You know, and so it's just serial right. grievance. Serial grievance monogamy, we could call it. You know, is they need one controlling, <laughs> you know, grievance after another. And you can just watch the tacticians in them calculating, or Erdogan in Turkey is the same. You know, he was given tremendous life by the attempted coup in 2016, because he was after Gezi Park in 2013, the protest there. He was like, hey, I need a new grievance here. Oh, they tried to get me in the coup, you know. And so they go, you know, from two to three, four years grievance at a time. <clears throat> Why does that, so there's a, there's a nice term. I like, the, I like the idea of the politics of anger because anger has a, has, um, has a particular quality. A whole bunch of political theorists have described anger as the sort of quintessential political emotion because it is, it's righteous, it's reasonable, it's rationalized. There is a cause and there is an effect. The effect is anger. The cause is any one of the things you've mentioned in the case of Viktor mm. Orban. But, why do these things come about and how are they sustainable? How is that politics of anger, that politics of grievance sustainable? What does it do to a, to a population? Why do we voters mm -hmm. fall for it? And sometimes they fall for it. They embrace it. They jump to it. It's like somebody's speaking to my indignity, to my the way I've been mistreated, the way I've been overlooked, the way I haven't been privileged. So there's somebody speaking for me. I leap to it, I embrace it, and then I wanna go with it because someone's finally you know, promising me some justice. Uh, and so you know, I remember watching the first 10 minutes of the debate in 2016 between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, the first of the three presidential debates. I went, well, let's see how this goes. And Donald Trump opened up his first statement with this kind of lavish, statement about American carnage and our cities under this. And, you know, just the, I looked out my window, I thought, my goodness, yeah. is this the country I live in? But he essentially won that election in the first 10 minutes because he defined a vision and said, all of those who, you know, are really unsettled by what's happening in our country and feel economically dislocated, culturally looked down upon, left behind in this way, I'm your man. And you know what Hillary Clinton's response was? I probably don't remember. She said, if you go to our website, we have a lot of good policy solutions. <laughs> uh, no, that's not what people were looking to hear. You had to come, you, she would have had to put forward an alternative narrative and said, Donald, I believe in America. I have a more positive vision. Yes, we have problems, but my train looks like this. Get on my train, not that train. Right. Not go to my website and see some technocratic policy solutions. Most of the examples that you've given here have been on the right. Victor Orban, Jair uh, Bolsonaro, Donald Trump. You also mentioned Hugo Chavez, of course, on the left. But is there a different tenor to the um, to the grievance politics of the left and the right? Does it appeal to a different yeah, kind of rage? It is, is different. It, is it yeah. different qualitatively? Yeah. I think, in a nutshell, the the rage from the right it's basically nativism of some type. It's uh, there are others horning in on our country and trying to take what's rightfully ours. On the left, it's 
all of us have been excluded except for this circle of rich and privileged people. And it's an inclusive grievance. Come join this. We want everybody who feels they've been mistreated. Whereas on the right, it's, I can tell by looking at you whether you're a member of our tribe or not. And so it's, it's an exclusive grievance versus an inclusive grievance. Now, doesn't mean both are quite punitive to those they don't include, but there is a different spirit behind them in various ways. I can't say that one's angrier than the other because <laughs> people can be pretty angry in, in both of those modalities, but there is a difference. Okay, and so people often say that the right has all the best lines. They're far better able, the right is far better able to access deep sort of lizard brain emotion when it comes to politics than the left. George Lakoff's written an entire book about this. Is that fair? Is that true? Or are we just, do we just happen to be in a moment in which the right has got the message? Well, it may be. You know, it's a good question. I haven't thought extensively about it, but it may be that if you're pursuing an exclusivist grievance, you can be more cutting because you want to slam the other side, put them down and say, we're the, we're the real Americans, as they like to say in the United States, people on the, on the conservative side, we're the real Americans and they're the, whatever they are. Whereas an inclusive grievance, you don't wanna be so cutting because you're trying to build a big tent. Hugo Chavez wanted 80% of Venezuelans to vote for him. Donald Trump wanted 46.2% of Americans to vote for him or 46.3 on a good day. And so there's a difference in the way kind of language you use, because when you're trying to be inclusive, you don't want to slam it down right down the middle with a sharp knife and say, we're on this side, you're on that side. So I think that may be part of it. That's interesting. There's a theoretician of the left in the UK who's actually Belgian called Chantal Mouffe. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Her book, The New New Left Populism, uh, which makes this very strong call for a kind of a a leftist populism, which includes as many people in the tent as possible, while also being as nasty as possible about the people outside. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I'm not too fond of the nastiness in in that vision, but yeah. No, nor nor, nor I, but but, um, Mm -hmm. much of the response to that book was the left cannot do that kind of nasty precisely for the reasons that you've just described. You need a group of people. You need too many people in. Yeah, look at Corbyn's problems in the Labour Party with anti-Semitism. Um, you know, Trump can be a racist. Didn't hurt him because that's part of an exclusive um, grievance guy is some people aren't on our team. Now, he did get black votes and he did pander and cater in some ways. But basically, you know, there were a lot of racist messages in, in his presidency, whereas Labour Party one little group starts getting disfavored. People say, wait, that's not the Labour Party. Labour Party is inclusive. We don't hate anybody. Um, so, yep. No, that makes a great deal of sense. Okay, so going back to this beautiful idea, which is that the notion that there is something that has not been addressed, that the, that the politics, the prevailing politics have excluded a narrative or multiple narratives, that has, it has not provided alternatives. I uh, would hazard that the right in Western democracies over the course of the last 10 years and this swing to populist, to a sort of populist polarized right that we see across Western democracies this last decade, their argument would be it's precisely because something was missing, because a part of the narrative has been excluded, because a part of political choice was denied us for a long time. Is that fair? That's probably the most polite way to put it. I mean, I think it was... I mean, don't hold back. Give us the less polite version. (laughs) The last polite version was a number of Europeans felt that their identities were threatened by change in their societies, either the arrival of people from other countries who looked and believed in things 
different, looked different from them and believed in different things, or changes in social mores like relating to LGBTQ or abortion or women, the place of women in the household and so forth. And they begin to feel like my country, as I define it, is under threat and I want to hold on to it. So stop all those things that, that are changing my country. And so it's, it, you know, the rise of a illiberal right in Europe is a reaction to change. And it's saying, I want to walk back this change. And to do so, I have to break some eggs and I have to break, you know, sort of standard consensus around migration is a good thing. The arc of history may not be towards LGBTQ rights, in my view, if you're part of this view and so forth. So I think it comes from an insecurity about change and a, and a feeling that I'm not being asked my permission and my country is being changed from under my feet. Do you buy any suggestion of this? It's like unpleasant and, and certainly massively overblown term, but this notion of sort of liberal fascism that the right often sort of dangles in front of bien pensant liberals, that they've somehow excluded the right from the narrative. And part of the backlash that we see today is deserved because there's been censorship. Mm, I think it's overblown. There is a problem in some cases with. Uh, people on the left not being willing to listen to contrary views or saying we can't have a speaker at our university whom we feel goes beyond a certain limit. But, you know, I'm living in a country where, you know, we see people like the Proud Boys marching in the street wearing color-coded uniforms, carrying automatic weapons and shouting slogans of hatred. And they're saying, yeah, our real problem is liberal fascism. I'm like, mm, I'm a little more worried about that other fashion right over there with, see those guys marching around with automatic weapons and threatening people? Looks mm. a lot more like fascism to me than a couple of student groups at Brown University who can't stand having a conservative come talk about a different idea about religion and society. So, you know, I think we're comparing apples and oranges a little bit here. And I think um, there's a broader tendency, at least in the US debate, to try to equalize the two sides and say there's, you know, illiberal tendencies on both sides. But um, at least a small part of the extreme on the right is <laughs> they're not just illiberal, they are fascistic. Whereas right. on the left, I don't think what we see cancel culture and so forth to call that fascistic is, it's just not a good use of that term. And I think it's inappropriate, actually. Yeah, I, I tend to, it's, a, it's certainly wildly overblown. And it, of course, it massively devalues the pain and danger of fascism itself. But we've touched upon the kind of polarized politics that we see in the US, in Hungary, broadly across across the West. But your your book covers polarization all over the world. You've already touched on on India, but Colombia, but Bangladesh, but Turkey, Turkey Kenya, Indonesia, Kenya, Indonesia, etc. So there's a particular move that has taken place across the West and that we're all conscious of. What I found so interesting about your book is that it touches on uh, elements of polarization elsewhere. Can you talk me through whatever trends you see there? There's a lot of polarization in democracies all around the world. It has different kinds of roots, but it looks fairly similar in how it plays out. What are those different roots? It's really striking. Um, when you look at the different kinds of cases, you see a pattern as there tend to be one of three different kinds of routes. You come to me and say, hey, I've got a very polarized country. I would sit down and say, okay, let me guess. It's one of these three things, right? First, is it religion? Do you have in your country a kind of conservative religious element that really wants religion and society to be more prominent and more controlling versus a more secular side? Hindu nationalism versus secular India. 
um, in Egypt before the Muslim Brotherhood, when the Muslim Brotherhood was briefly running the country 2011-12, conservative Islam versus the secular Egyptian establishment, Turkey, etc. So it could be religion. And it's not between two religions. It's usually between a conservative view of religion and a more secular view of the same religion. And it's not just Islam. Christianity in Poland, the Catholic conservatism of the Polish right versus the more secular progressivism. Most. It could be Judaism in Israel, conservative uh, right, which is fueled by certain, you know, uh, very conservative elements and so forth. So it's not particular to a religion. religion. Second, race, <clears throat> ethnicity. It's a big one. We tend to think it's the biggest, but actually religion's more common than the other as a driver right. of polarization. Kenya, couple of major tribes that have really fought for over 40 years over power. There are other tribes, but two big tribes, the um, Kuyo and the Luau, that have been fighting over power. So an ethnic difference like that. And then the third is, I'd say, an ideological clash. Ideology in the sense of the haves and the have-nots are really going at it. Venezuela, 1990s, Hugo Chavez comes to power, represents the have-nots, attacks the haves, and starts to take apart the system. So. You know, you come to me, I'm the polarization doctor, you say, Doc, I'm, I'm just really feeling it. I'd say, okay, which of these three do you got? And you go, oh my gosh, I got some of one, a little bit of two, I'm okay on three. And that's how you can begin to sort of think, what's the fundamental fissure here in the country? And that's at least a start in thinking about the roots. That's fascinating. Okay, so with two of those issues, insofar as religion and race, you got them or you don't, as you, as you, as you say. They either either is a major mix of religious groups in your country. No, but it's no. Hold on, that. hold that thought, because imagine you're Turkey in 1975. <clears throat> Ataturk came and founded the modern Turkish Republic in the 1920s. He said, "Women, take off your headscarves, take off your veils. We're going to make a modern secular Turkey. We're going to put Islam in a certain kind of place." Country goes along for 50 years like that, and then. There's a new movement that starts and sort of says, hey, wait a minute, I think you're, you know, we'd like to be a little more Islamist than that. And then over the next 20, 30 years, the AKP emerges an actor, gets a strong leader in Erdogan in a country that thought it had solved that divide a long right. time ago and for a long time. So it isn't that you're born with it, you can develop it, unfortunately. Now you'd say, well, I could trace all the way back and say, oh, I have the seeds of a rift like that. It's what we call a political scientist called founding rifts is a country is founded, are there sort of rifts that are basic to the constituents, sort of parts of the country that you can predict over time, watch out, because this rift is there and over time it could, you know. I mean, I, I lived in the UK for years in the 1980s. I never would have thought Scottish independence would be a serious issue 20 or 30 years later. I would have said, are you kidding? Right. That's, that's way in the past. That's settled, it's solved. Nope. No, indeed. And it keeps on coming back. That's fascinating. Yes, the example I was imagining, of course, was was um, somewhere like South Sudan, which at its very foundation has rifts going That's deep right. across Definitely pretty much right. Foundational rifts. That's right. Foundational rifts. So. But of course, somewhere like, um, but of course, those, those, those rifts can emerge. Now, you might say that the Scottish-English divide has <laughs> was only there for us to look at, because <laughs> honestly, you go to a rugby match between England and Scotland, and you can hear it in the sound. <laughs> Good point. But, um, but, but yeah, not to that for, and I think probably your example of Turkey is so fantastic because it shows that a shift in culture can take a very large swathe of the population with it, leaving the other exactly where it stood, and then build this rift which sort of emerges like two tectonic plates separating across. So I hear you completely on religion, especially if we're talking about dialing 
it up or down, or dialing elements of it up or down. Race, I'm thinking of, of course, we go back to South Sudan because poor South Sudan has got all these things, mm -hmm. but, but let's take Belgium. <laughs> yeah, Belgium's a great example of, Belgium's an example of paralyzing polarization, yet the ability to manage it and keep it within bounds. Belgium has not broken apart as a country. It is, yes, it is dysfunctional in various ways, but it is one of the richest countries in the world or, you know, in the, the group of top 30 richest countries. And so deeply polarized, yet functional in its own dysfunctional kind of way. When it comes, therefore, to the last criteria, um, the haves and have nots, is there a, I kind of want a number from you, Tom. I want to, I want, I, I want to, <laughs> if, you know, if 50% or more of the GDP of the country is controlled by 10% or less of the population, then things blow. Is that, is it, is, is that a thing or am, am I being ridiculous? If I knew the answer to that question, I'd probably have the Nobel Prize in economics. Um, people have been, <laughs> I mean, that's why inequality studies are a growth stock. People are wondering what that number is. You know, in the world, it's 1% of the world has 60% of the world's wealth. Hmm, that's, that's quite a bit. Um, is that sustainable? I don't know. Country by country, some countries are in positions like that, and it produces a lot of anger. But I, there isn't a bright line. Look, you know, you can have relatively high levels of inequality for decades and decades in a country, and it looks like it's it's kind of working out. Brazil is like that high inequality country, some real haves, a lot of have-nots. You had a couple of good presidents, Enrique Cardoso, then you had Lula came in, introducing policies to distribute the resources, pro-poor policies, yet sticking with the capitalist growth, very artful, I must say. And then, boom, system explodes in the last six, seven years. Why? Well, systemic corruption um, and, you know, anger at the public about the corruption of the system. But just as importantly, the economic success to those working class and very poor people raise their level of education and their level of expectations. And they begin to say, now that I see how things work here, I get it. Yeah, you're handing me this little nice, uh, you know, monthly payment, but I see that the, the big guys are, are stealing me blind. And so it's funny, you can have a successful attempt to manage inequality, which then produces more anger. And in case of Brazil, an explosion, burning down of the existing political parties and the arrival onto the scene or the emergence of a, a Bolsonaro as, as the leader. That's just fascinating. There's a French political theorist called Emmanuel Todd that you may have come across who predicted mm -hmm. the demise of the Soviet Union based precisely on rising education levels um, on exactly the same terms that you've just described in Brazil. Mm -hmm. I was One of the things that struck me in your book was that the, the economics of a country have almost no bearing on polarization. You can have a country doing really well economically mm -hmm. and it nevertheless blowing up when the other way around. I know. I was really surprised by that. And I can tell you, when I give talks on this topic, one of the first questions is usually, isn't this really just about poverty and inequality? People are angry and the country's polarized. I'll say, well, wait a minute. Let's just pause on three cases here. India, starting in the early 1990s, began the best economic run of its its life, uh, thanks to the inter injection of some, some good reform policies. Precisely in those years, it became more polarized. Turkey had the best run of its economic life from the year 2000 to the mid-2010s the same years in which it polarized heavily. Brazil, same thing. So it's like, wait a minute, rising expectations, that dynamics that are unleashed by, by change um, are very complex and very confusing, but can lead to anger and polarization just as much as inequality. It's, it's unfortunately, you know, uh, damned if you do and damned if you don't a bit. 
Uh, you change the country. You're like, hey, you know, Lula and Enrique Cardoso felt like, hey, I gave a lot to Brazilians. Why are you so angry at me? Um, but it used to be, you know, when I was in graduate school, um, you'd open the newspaper every day and there were protests in South Korea. Students protest again in South Korea. It was like, yeah, yeah, that's been going on for 10 years. South Korea had the fastest rate of economic growth of any country from the 1960s to the, to the 1990s. It's an economic miracle, South Korea. And it had the angriest population. And you're like, wait a minute, uh, you're the most successful. Why are you so angry? Because they weren't getting their share. Right. And the government was trying to keep a lid on it and keep political control and students and others said, hey, I want a voice. You know, I'm, I'm educated now. I know what you're doing. And yeah, okay, I've got a nice telephone now and a better flat, but hey, I want a voice. I want a part of this. And so economic success unleashes forces just as much as economic failure produces negative forces as well. Beware the middle classes. <laughs> Is this new? Is polarize? I mean, everywhere you look, I see another article on polarization or or, a, or somebody decrying it. But is is this a is this a particularly new thing? And if it is new, how is it new? No, it's not new in nature, Turi. I mean, the United States, you know, if I recall correctly, 160 years ago, entered into a vicious civil war for five years that was extraordinary and represented an extraordinary level of polarization in this country. And so certainly not new, but why are we reading about it so much now? Why is it, as you say, this is a growth stock in today's uh, kind of <laughs> ideas industry? I think there are two reasons. First, it's hitting the wealthy established democracies much more than people expected. And in a one minute answer, why? Because um, those democracies suffered two big strains in the last 20 years. First, a lot of economic stagnation, which created a lot of unsettled working class and middle class people who feel insecure and don't feel like they're getting their share and they're right. Their wages are not rising, their wealth is not rising. And second, a lot of sociocultural change. 20 years ago, the idea that the Irish prime minister was gonna be a person who was like that, are you kidding? A lot of social cultural change about abortion, women's rights, LGBTQ, et cetera. And they were, both of those things have stirred up wealthy established democracies to new levels of political temperature. And the second time, on the second hand, a lot of developing democracies, the fact is there's just a lot more democracies in the last 30 years than there were in most of the 20th century. And so you have a lot of, you know, attempted democracies <laughs> in the developing world, Thailand, Indonesia, Brazil, et cetera. And so there's a lot more cases out there. And as those democracies have settled in and tried to you know, stabilize and become effective democracies, a lot of those countries, going back to the founding rifts issue, a lot of those countries were formed out of post-colonial processes that left fundamental rifts that still need to be worked out in the countries, either, you know, colonial amalgams that were put together or, you know, look at Myanmar, for example, with its problem with the Rohingya and how they've, you know, uh, not been dealing very well with that and so forth. So wealthy established democracies, a lot of new polarization, developing democracies, coming to terms with trying to make democracy work. Those two things together put polarization on the bestseller list. Tom, that's fascinating. So just to sort of go through those again, or some of the contradictions which you flagged, we've already established that economic stagnation is not a prerequisite for polarization at all. You talked about South Korea, South Korea very forcefully. And yet, economic stagnation is absolutely a driver of polarization across the West. Ditto, the kind of things that you look for, race divisions, class divisions, um, and identity or religious divisions, such a tremendous variety across the-, the Hold um, on, let's just pause right there. You're British, think about Brexit. 
it's a polarization stew. You know, you probably spent thousands of hours on the psychiatric couch trying to explain Brexit. It's got all <laughs> kinds of identity issues. What is it? What is Britain? What is Great Britain? I mean, you know, what is it mean to be British? What about identity issues like migration? What about economic issues like, hey, I'm a working class person, I'm getting a fair shake. What about elitism versus sort of popular popular views? Brexit is like a stew of all of these different kind of things because you know, I can tell you I was shocked that I went to London last year and I was walking down by parliament and there were people out there demonstrating. I thought it was in the United States who were calling for the death of politicians. They had violent slogans. It was like, what happened here? You know, I lived in the UK when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister, a very polarizing time in British politics, but it was within a certain boundary. It was rather traditional polarization, whereas Brexit produced a level of toxicity. You know, a person was, you know, a member of parliament was killed um, that I don't recall from the 80s in quite the same way because it, it, it stirred up a whole series of deeper identity-based roots at a time when Britain was feeling less secure about itself and its place in the world. So that's kind of what I want to get to, because again, if we're trying to build a taxonomy of polarization or a, or a typology of the kind of countries which topple into it, we've got such variety here, just listening to you talk through the examples that you have. Um, and again, to be clear, you flag right at the beginning that it is a feature of democracy. There is no hard line that you either mm -hmm. on one side of or the other. But are there certain key, are there certain features of democracy? I'm starting to get into the questions as to how we fix this issue of polarization or what needs to be fixed, but are there certain qualities of democracy which exacerbate it? I know that you talk about the problems of first-past-the-post politics, mm -hmm. which split complex political question into blues versus reds or labor versus conservative, et cetera, et cetera. But are there any other features there in the, in the, in the, in the detail? You're a lawyer mm -hmm. by education. Are there elements there that you'd point to? Yeah, I don't think, I had hoped, you know, we might find like, oh, here are the three institutional deficiencies. It's like, why is my car making this funny sound? It turns out it's the distributor cap. Oh, phew, okay. <laughs> um, you know, I've got the fix for you. But it's, you know, yes, there is a tendency in two-party systems that are created through, you know, majoritarian districting or whatever the particular electoral system that produces a two-party system and in presidential systems. So it comes down to in Bolivia, do you want you know, Morales or his party to be elected again or not? It's this or that as opposed to the Dutch endless coalition of you know, eight different parties in a small right. country forming these complex coalitions. And you, know, uh, you can have a dinner party with eight Dutch people and every one of them votes for a different political party. <laughs> so it's kind of hard for them to line up on one side of the table or the other. Um, and so, yes, presidentialist systems and systems that have sort of two-party, like the UK and the US, I think are more prone to this kind of binary polarization. Um, but, you know, there are other features as well. I think the media is very important. The United States here, uh, you can have two kinds of media that can contribute to polarization. You can have a very privatized media that is subject to uh, entrepreneurial meter, uh, sort of media behavior on the part of wealthy people like Robert Murdoch, who tend to be very polarizing because that's how you sell newspapers and radio and television and so forth. And so if you privatize your media, you're opening up the media to polarizing actors. I'm not against private media, but you've got to think carefully about that. The, the United States in the 80s and 90s, as talk radio came in and cable television, 
the introduction of, of very polarizing media was very damaging. Uh, so I keep that in mind to those in the UK who are thinking of taking apart the BBC. Um, and then secondly, it's not just privatizing the media, but also the alternative, of course, is a very heavily government controlled, politically controlled in a, in a nasty way kind of media that gets used. So Viktor Orban comes in 2010 to power. One of his biggest projects is to gradually strangle the Hungarian media space to the point today where 80 to 90% of it is safely in government hands or friends of the government, private actors who are friends of the government and control it. So either you privatize it in a way with too little control or the government gets too big of a control on it and certain politicians use it as part of their polarizing strategy. Before we get to our, la our last questions, I want to touch on the question of coronavirus and polarization because I know you've done a lot of work on it. Is there any suggestion, which we've seen, uh, we've seen here in the UK, there have been suggestions uh, elsewhere across Europe that actually a coronavirus pandemic, which has reminded all of us that we exist as a society, that we are a community of people that needs to look after each other, um, has had some positive impact on the ways in which we see our fellow citizens. Do you see that borne out? Yes, but only at the local and community level and sometimes at the symbolic national level, but not in national political life. It's been startling to me to see how polarizing the pandemic has been in polarized countries. It turns out if you have a country lined up with this camp versus that camp and you toss them almost any challenge, they can argue over it. And so first I thought, you know, pandemic was kind of like global warming on, on steroids and it's all gonna happen in one or two years. It's a, it's a scientific reality you can't deny, so let's get with it. No. Turns out you can argue over it. You can argue over just how big of a threat is it really? And people argued a lot over that. And is that the level of that threat worth the economic damage that I think your remedies are gonna cause? And that turns out to be a difficult question. What is the right balance? It isn't just an off on answer of, you know, do this or do that. It's very, very tricky. And, and so both the nature of the threat and the nature of the response are subject to very polarizing arguments because they tend to involve kind of basic questions about identity in the sense of what what I happen to be from a family that's a, you know, uh, this person says a frontline worker and I'd like to be protected for these reasons. I'm somebody who stays home and works. I have a different risk threshold and different, you know, sort of risk calculus. And so it turned out there were a lot of divisions in the experience of how the pandemic affected, you know, different people. And so Suddenly it was just grist for the polarizing mill. And you look at the United States, the pandemic has been extraordinarily polarizing in this country, even though a majority of Americans do actually agree on at least some elements of it. Brazil, very polarizing. Bolsonaro has used the pandemic as a polarizing hammer to just slam the society. We're not a nation of sissies, as he said recently. Um, India, uh, very polarized country. It has only become more polarized in recent months as Modi feels the need for various reasons to crack down still further. Um, Turkey fought, you know, Erdogan fought with the mayor of Budapest, uh, mayor of <clears throat> Istanbul over, you know, what's the right approach. And so everywhere you see a very polarized democracy and then you watch the pandemic unfold, it has not been, as we'd say in the US, a kumbaya moment of let's put aside <laughs> our differences and sit around the campfire and agree that, you know, the pandemic's a bad thing. 
it almost feels like it echoes what you were describing about the politics of grievance, which is that once you're in, you got to stay in. So if you started, yes. if you started angry about economics, you yes. then move on to angry about LGBTQ it's very issues, hard et to lay down your arms once you're in the struggle, because why should I be the first one? You know, I don't see him laying down his arms. Why should I? And each side thinks that pretty, you know, it's sort of. There's a performative element to this as well, isn't there? Which is that as you precisely described how political polarization works, there is a separation of people on either side. And once you've become a little bit liberal or a little bit conservative, everything else sorts around it. You, you homogenize your opinions in line with your tribal group. Again, not meaning to be uh, disparaging African tribes, as you said earlier, but, um, and it feels like any new controversy pops and works as a sorting mechanism. You know, I think we're living through some change which we haven't quite got the, the feeling for it. We haven't put our minds around it, which is in an information space that's completely saturated so that we, we have accessible to us extraordinary amounts of information all across the range of, of any topic. In order to, for information to rise above that ocean and to be felt, it has to be more noticeable. You have to stick out. I mean, we're always sitting around at Carnegie in our communications group thinking, how can we be heard? How can we write something? We don't want to do clickbait. We're a serious institution, but how are we going to break through the noise on this? And everybody's always trying to break through the noise these days. You know, even if it's a teenager sitting down saying, what can I post on my Facebook page? So I really going to be noticed in the school. People are going to like my photo. They're not going to just publish some bland photo of me baking brownies with my mother. You know, they're going to do a photo of them doing something they're not supposed to be doing in a kind of weird <laughs> way. And they're going to get a lot of likes for it. And right. so I think... We're in an age in which the individual, the political actor, the political party, et cetera, are all striving to, to sort of ratchet up the temperature of what they do in order to be to distinguish themselves in this ocean that we're living in. And so somehow the moderate, the bland, the conventional don't cut it anymore. And, you know, it's a lot of the reason Donald Trump got elected in 2016, but we could explain a lot of other phenomena in this way as well. One of the great disappointments of my life that as I hit middle age, the centrist dad is not as sexy as I hoped he might be. I kind of want to take this sort of systemic analysis of yours about social media and what it does and the ways in which we exist in this information ecosystem and, and combine it with your description of this particular moment in the West. A very large segment of society feels like it's been um, denied the benefits of economic growth on the one hand, that it's also being left behind or left to the side or being censored um, by a very fast acceleration of sort of progressive social politics. Does that Lenin quote that it's something like there are, there are years in which nothing happens and then there are weeks in which everything happens. Um, are we in one of those? Is, does polarization anchor itself to moments of massive social change? Um, and therefore, could it actually be useful? Or is it actually just, do we have to just accept it as a feature of one democracy mm -hmm. and two, the information age in which we live? Well, I think, look, in most countries that are very polarized, you'll find periods in which polarization intensifies very quickly. They'll go along and then something, there'll be a brief period in which they really go down that negative spiral and then they are there and then they either recover from that or they get worse. So there tend to be hotspots. A polarization. Donald Trump, last four years, definitely a hot spot in American history of polarization. Brexit, definitely a hot spot in the British yep. history of you know political dynamics. And the hot spots, you know that feeling, like at the height of the Brexit thing, you thought, 
can I someday just open the newspaper and not have to read another article about Brexit, please? Can we get to that? Can we get to that moment? You know, I'm fatigued. I, I had feelings about it, but I just want to move beyond it, please. Now, fortunately, it was just a single issue, even as it sucked in all these kind of emotions and ties to other issues. But in other countries, Hindu nationalism in India, sorry, you're not going to get beyond that. That's the history of India. So they're going to have to come to terms with, do they want to be a Hindu nationalist country or do they want to be a secular progressive country and or find a balance between those two? Right. So some polarization struggles are not just a single time. They go through intensive, intensifying periods as they've been through with Modi in recent years, but they're on a polarizing dynamic that, that is going to last for decades and probably centuries. And that's true in a number of countries that you mentioned, Sudan and, and others. Um, so... In many cases, polarization is not just an event or a moment or a particular danger at a particular time. It's a more systemic condition that really needs to be managed rather than solved. Okay, last question, Tom. How does one manage polarization? How do we fix this? How do we, and perhaps not fix it because fix is the wrong word because as you rightly, as you rightly say, polarization can be wonderful. It spits up new ideas. It ensures that there is a constant renewal of the, of political discourse, but how does one manage it then? Well, three things I would emphasize. First, focus on your guardrails, your institutional guardrails. They're gonna keep the competition. He's got these two boxers, build a ring around them strong enough to keep them from flying off into the audience and killing somebody. What are the <laughs> ring around them? What an image. One is, your, one is your electoral system. If they can at least agree every four years or five years, we have to put ourselves up for election and abide by the results, that's good. Another is the rule of law. There's a referee, an umpire. They have to actually say, you can't do that. You cannot hit the guy this way. That's not allowed. You know, You're, you can touch him this way. You can kick him that way, but you can't hit him that way. And so you've got to have the rule of law to say that politicians, there is something bigger than your struggle mm -hmm. that our country believes in this law. So an electoral system of real institutional legitimacy and authority and the guardrail of the rule of law. Then... You need a political system, you know, I, I could say, you need reasonable political leaders. Well, don't count on that. Uh, at least nobody living in Washington like I do uh, counts on that <clears throat> anymore in this country. Not a given. So what do you need? You, you do need certain institutional features that will not encourage this kind of thing, like opening your system up to no controls over political financing, allowing you know wealthy political entrepreneurs to come in and polarize the system for their benefit, opening your media up with no holds barred to privatize media with no idea about what that'll mean in terms of injecting uh, all kinds of polarizing dynamics into the system. So you have to really do a careful institutional review and see what features of your political system and social system are encouraging it. And then third, the civil side, the civic side, is people gotta realize you know, at a certain point, yes, it's sort of fun being polarizing and really feeling I'm, I'm on this team and not on that team, that the larger struggle is more important than the victory of the team. And so you've got to, you really do have to do bridge building at the community level. People have to learn to talk to each other across sides. You need to do things, you know, the famous <clears throat> step by Nelson Mandela of coming out to the rugby match and cheering for the white <clears throat> rugby team that had been South Africa's national pride to say, you know, we're all on the same team here. You've got to have individuals, community leaders, local politicians, et cetera, who project messages of common concern, common humanity. We're in this together, even as the national politicians fight over the big battle. So you create a base in the country that believes in the idea of common experience and common values. So there's a lot, guardrails, 
political institutional features and civic building from the bottom up. That bottom up piece seems to me the the trickiest because you can mandate from top down in all sorts of different ways and that kind of makes sense. It's tough to do, but it but it sort of makes sense. And it's an easier play because there are rules or there are not rules and you rewrite the rules if the rules aren't good enough. But that fundamental realization that's necessary in any society to realize that the people on the other side are your most loyal partner in the building of democracy because without that opposition, you are not a democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, that, key, that key realization is where I feel, again, in the UK, on the back of Brexit, polarized as it, polarizing as it was for us um, in the US, given what you guys have just been through, that is, feels to me the piece that is missing. And perhaps it's a, perhaps it is a media play. Perhaps it's the media's fault. Perhaps no, the, it's fault. It's up to everybody. But you're right. It's very. That's where I'd end on a just slightly hopeful note. I think that's where I think the pandemic has been somewhat depolarizing. You know, I was at the grocery store this morning. When I walked up to check out, I looked at the woman, African-American woman, probably working for 15 bucks an hour. Um, it's tough. She's out there every day in a face mask, hoping she doesn't get sick. I could say I felt something that I hadn't felt before when I used to go to the grocery store. You know, talk to her a little bit. So what that I talked to her, but I'd be willing to, you know, vote for a minimum wage that's higher, whereas maybe I wouldn't have before and thought that was inefficient. I'd be willing to see the healthcare system change. You know, the common humanity across lines in our society, the person running the metro car, the person at the grocery store, those poor nurses out there just in execrable conditions in a lot of hospitals in this country. I think it has opened our hearts and our minds a little bit in ways that'll help us uh, help us feel at least some sense of common humanity beneath the level of the political noise. Tom, what a great place to end. Thank you so much for walking us through a super complex topic, which you also managed to do at a global scale. So congrats and thank you. My pleasure. Good to be with you. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme. And join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen, and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening. <laughs>